This is Christmas week. I hope that you are uh, turning your attention as we've all been trying to kind of shift our hearts and our minds away from just materialism and kind of the hype of Christmas toward the baby Jesus who was laid in a manger for us. Uh, this has been a season that uh, has been remarkable as we continue to journey through this one passage, Luke chapter 2. Uh, we've set a standard over here at Redstone this month in that we have agreed and we're going to hold each other accountable to do what? To memorize a passage of scripture. So um, again, I've helped you enormously here. There are still lots of blanks. However, hopefully we have these three verses close to our hearts and we have memorized most of it. So class and the angel of the Lord. Here we go. One, two, three, and, and. Filled with. And then the angel of the Lord said to them. For unto you this day is born. Uh, you know, sorry, in the city of a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Pretty good, right? Give yourselves a hand. You at least, we, we gave it the old, the old tribe. That's a pretty tepid clap. So is that a, is that a clap of guilt? Like, oh, I probably didn't get it all. Anyway, this is the word of the Lord. Um, the psalmist tells us to hide the word of God in our heart. There is something about memorizing scripture where you're able to come alongside the very words of God, the phrases of God. Now you have a pretty good passage of God in your heart that is very famous for you to go back and reflect on. Uh, today we are going to be talking about the kings of Christmas. And so I would encourage you to open up your Bibles or turn in your worship guides to Luke chapter 2. Uh, we are just going to be talking through and preaching through the first few verses of Luke chapter 2. Um, I'm going to read all of, it in, uh, all of it in its entirety. However, just know that 1 through 7 will be our text for this morning. This is the Word of God and this is the Christmas story as it's written by Luke here in chapter 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, uh, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over the flock, their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel of the Lord said to them, fear not for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, 
a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was an angel, with the angel, a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And the angel went from them into heaven. The shepherds said to one another, let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. Luke chapter 2, 1 through 20. And so here we have the Gospel of Luke written by a person named Luke. And what we know from history is that Luke was a physician. Now Luke, because he was a, a physician, he was sophisticated, he was educated, he was smart. In fact, if you just look at the Greek, it's pretty complex and pretty thorough Greek in the way that he was able to write the Gospel of Luke. He's writing to a person who is of, of high stature in, in, in the Roman government. He wants to convince this person in the book of Luke and also in the book of Acts to believe in Jesus. And so this is a great apologetic. This is a great, like he's trying to convince this person that he must believe in Jesus. And so with all the smarts and with all the sophistication, Luke strategically and precisely adds a king to begin our passage. And this is by no accident because Luke doesn't do things by accident. Every single word and every single sentence and paragraph is put together, stitched together as an apologetic for people to actually believe in, in Jesus. And so how does Luke start the great Christmas story? He starts with the topic of kings of kings. It's crazy. And so today we're going to actually talk about some things. We're going to talk about secular kings. We're also going to be talking about religious kings. And of course, we're going to be talking about Jesus, who is the king of kings. But first and foremost, we need to draw our attention to this idea of that there is a secular world out there and there's secular governments and there are kings or there's rulers or there's, or there's czars or presidents or those types of things that run these governments underneath the Lord's uh, um, uh, complete sovereignty. So in chapter 2 verse 1 you see this. In the day in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. There's also a mention of Quirinius and those kinds of things, but we're just going to stop in verse 1 and just say that in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Here is a guy and is he something? right? You may not know much about Caesar. You may not know about ancient Rome. However, the attention needs to be put to our attention that this is how Luke, the physician, the one who doesn't miss, uh, miss any detail, this is how he starts. Caesar Augustus was literally the king of the world because he was king. He was ruler. He was the Caesar over Rome. 
And at Rome, and in this, in, we're here in the first century, in the height of the Roman Empire, it stretched all the way to the northwest of Great Britain, all the way to the southeast of Egypt. It was a massive, massive a piece of land. And somehow Caesar Augustus in his primacy was able to come together and both conquer lands but also bring about peace and prosperity. Some of you have heard the phrase the Pax Romana which mainly means the, the Rome of peace. That means something that he was able to do was both unifying right but strong and was able to bring great kind of flourishing to the Roman Empire and it was vast and it was complex and there was a road system and there was interstates and there was uh, great fleets in which able to do types of trade. They, would, they zigged and they zagged all throughout the Mediterranean. This guy was something. He was strong and he was powerful and he reigned for 40 years over Rome and, it be, and he began what became one of the most prosperous and almost influential cultures of all human history. And so with that, Luke wants to bring our attention to Caesar Augustus. If you are not a first century Jew or first century person, you would miss a couple of phrases. For instance, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. You see that little phrase? And then all the world. Now, Luke put that in specifics because he knows that there's other people groups and other lands outside of Rome. And how, however, when Luke talks about the world, he says everything under Roman ruled is considered all of this world. Ro secular kings have a couple of, there's, there's some benefits to secular, secular kings. One is that they have great authority. We need them to be authoritative in our lives. Sometimes their authority gets too stretched and so we have to rein them back. But authority or rule or justice, it belongs to them. The, the other thing about authority is also power. Oftentimes kings own armies and they're able to make um, decisions when it comes to, to war and those types of things. So not just authority, but also power and then also wealth. Oftentimes, a king, a secular king, is judged whether he or, or she, if she's a queen, is able to bring their empire into success financially. And so in these ways, this is how we judge these kings. Whether it's right or wrong, we look at the kings of history and we say, are they able to do these types of things? Caesar Augustus was able to do all of those things. He was able to bring authority and power and finance to the Roman Empire. And he was literally in charge of all the world. So why is this important? Why is this important to start out with a secular king when it comes to, when it comes to this? Well, we'll likely miss it. But this little phrase into all the world is a small little jab toward what Caesar believes to be in his power, authority, and finances. Because what Luke knows is something that Caesar Augustus did not know. What Luke knows that Caesar Augustus doesn't know is that it's really God who has lent Rome to Caesar Augustus. 
It's really God who is the sovereign over all things. So full authority and full reign and power and success actually belongs to God himself, not Caesar Augustus. It's just his on loan. Why does that matter? Because Luke says that the most powerful person on the planet was able to make a decree for all of the people in all of the world to go and be registered so that they would pay taxes. And what we think is that it's up to Caesar Augustus to do all that. But what Luke knows and what he's about to do is give credit to who God is. And God is truly the one who is really behind the scenes authoring this great story. There's a teenage couple. They're betrothed. They've yet to be married. There's a teenage couple and the, and the woman is with child and they live in the town of Nazareth. However, Caesar Augustus tells them that all people under his reign has to go back to their hometown in order to be registered and then also to be paid taxes. There's about a hundred mile round or a hundred mile span between Nazareth and Bethlehem. And what, C what Caesar has said is, hey, you need to go to your hometown. But what we really know is that God needed that teenage couple to leave Nazareth in an uncomfortable state of eight or nine months pregnant in order to get them to Bethlehem in order for her, Mary, to have her baby in the place that God chooses. So God was using Caesar Augustus and his power and his authority to get two teenagers to the exact place at the exact time so the fulfillment of, of, of God would, be, uh, would, 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 would come to pass. Secular kings get a lot of credit, and we should thank them for what they are able to do or not do. However, secular kings oftentimes use their power and authority and success to, to um, our detriment. We often look at our, the kings and the rulers of today, and we actually look at them as quite dismissive. However, if we were being honest with ourselves, we love authority. And we love power and we love success. And so the same things that are gauging secular kings are actually deep inside our own hearts because we want to be the true king of our own lives. And so in the same way that secular kings run their kingdoms, we often want to run our little kingdom of our own lives and that's where we get in trouble when we say we want complete authority and complete power and judging success on our own behalf. And that's where we get into trouble. And so oftentimes the, the heart of a secular king is actually found inside us. All throughout poetry, we find these little glimpses of these types of things. William Henley in the 1840s wrote a very, very famous path, uh, passage and poem. So famous is that it's still being quoted today in songs and lyrics and oftentimes in movies. Rulers, secular kings and rulers, including Nelson Mandela, have, been, have used this poem in order to gauge courage and to get them to places where they can't, belong, uh, where they can't get on their own. William Henley simply says this, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. At the heart of every secular king and at the heart of every secular heart is this idea 
that you own your own journey and that you own your own fate and you can get to the places that you want to be. William Henley, back in the 1840s, is simply telling us what Caesar Augustus was saying about himself and what is true about our own hearts, that we think it's up to us, when in fact it really is the sovereignty of God who is the true author of our fate. He is the one who should be the true captain of our soul. William Henley was a devout atheist. He thought that things rose and fell upon his wants and his desires. The secular heart is a really dangerous place to be. The secular heart actually gets us in trouble because of authority and power and success when we think that that's all that there is to life. But there's more than just a secular king in our story. There's also a religious king. Let's read. Let's keep on reading. And this was the first registration when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph went, also went up from Galilee to the town, uh, from the town of Nazareth to, Gal, uh, to, uh, Jude, uh, sorry, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was in the house and the lineage of David. If you are marking up your scriptures or those types of things, you need to understand that this lineage of David is really important. And so he was of the house of uh, the lineage of David. He, uh, um, he was, oh, sorry, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And it keeps going on. And it says, uh, verse 10, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. So there is not just a secular king in our passage. There's also a religious king and his name, of course, is King David. You've got the secular heart and we've kind of shot some holes in what that means for us. There's also a religious king, King David, that's also here. Now, if you were to look at the scriptures and you were to take a tally of all of the proper names inside the scriptures, there's some smart person out there that have tallied every proper name in the Bible. And so I would, I mean, this is kind of class time, but do you know who, whose name is mentioned the most in the Bible? My guess was Jesus, right? Jesus comes in at 957 times. Good job, Jesus. You're mentioned almost a thousand times. Now, Jesus is about on par with Moses. Moses is at 834. Not bad, Moses. Thank you so much. Abraham, he's kind of a paltry 234. So for the father of our faith, actually three faiths, um, is not doing great. However, the winner of this contest, the person whose name is mentioned the most, King David, 1,078. Well, so this guy is something, right? Even just by just the sheer numbers, he is something. If you were to, if he was to write a memoir and you were to read it, you would not put it down. His life and what he was able to do in his life was something else. This was a boy who was found in the fields, keeping watch over a flock by night. This is David, who was the shepherd, but he was just a ruddy boy. He was called out of the fields and he was anointed and he was able to be king. And the way that 
David comes onto uh, the scene. If you are reading our community Bible reading plan, we're going through 1 Samuel now. You're actually able to journey with David and we're able to see his first days as king. And the very first thing that we see from him is just his mighty strength. He's able to tell King Saul, he's like, hey, this, 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 this giant, Goliath, he's nothing. If you knew what these hands have done, my hands have killed lions and bears with, with my own hands. I've been able to rip them in half. If I'm able to do that and grab a lion by its mane, who is this simple uh, Gentile? I can take care of him. So here is David. He is a great warrior. But then at the other end of the spectrum, he's also a poet. He writes good music and he writes good love songs. And he's able to put things into poetry that you and I have memorized and and have been set to song. And so he is the epitome of like a lover warrior. This is who David is. He is powerful and he is strong. And he is the father of, of Jesus. He is, even though he's a thousand years before Jesus, he is, he starts the line of Jesus. This is a very important king in our story. David does some things in, in that would really just um, would stagger us to, to, um, to, to think through. In the Old Testament, we read things uh, about David that uh, set, him, uh, set him aside. Mainly, his prophecies about the Messiah. We hear things like this. Even Gabriel says to Mary. He speaks to Mary and says, And the Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. In 1 Samuel 16, it says that you, the throne, your throne, will never be taken from you. The king, this religious king, the promises of this king is that the Messiah, Messiah will come through your blood. Your, from your throne, will the king will never, ever stop from sitting. And yet David, as religious as he was, and as good as he was, and as powerful and wonderful and religious as he is, he's still no Messiah, was he? His life was filled with scandal. His life was filled with arrogance and pride. He was himself an an adulterer. He himself was uh, a murderer. This is our religious king, King David, who is mentioned more than any other proper noun in the Bible, was still completely flawed because there's a big difference between being in the bloodline of the Messiah and then being the Messiah himself. Quite simply, David had lots of baggage, And he was important, right? Really important. Just by number's sake, he was probably the most important of all people minus Jesus. And yet he was not the Messiah. And so we should be skeptical about leaning too hard, right? To our our secular hearts. We know that too much power, too much authority, too much success will get us in bad shape. However, if looking at David and both his successes and his defeat. We need to be just as skeptical of a religious king or our own religious hearts. Because here is the negotiation that religious people have with God all the time. Lord, I will do my part if you do your part. Lord, I will hold up my end of the bargain as long as you hold up your end of the bargain. 
And so when things get sideways on us and our religious heart really starts to, to, to rear its ugly head, it's when you think you've done everything right or you have been the one to toe the line, or you're the one who has had a daily quiet time, and yet your life looks nothing like what you think it should have looked at this point in your life. And at that point, there is a negotiation in your heart, your religious heart, that God owes you something because of all of your faithfulness and your righteousness to him. A religious heart is just as ugly as a secular heart. Because a secular heart still puts yourself on the throne of your own life. And you're making the Lord do, his, do your bidding for him. Be careful, religious heart. Because that exchange or that expectation that God owes you something really will make you fundamentally flawed. And so the application here is we find it in the, gospel, or in the Christmas story is that oftentimes what the Messiah has come to is he's come to very religious people in very dark places, in manger type places, in the middle of the night. Oftentimes where we find God is not necessarily when he gives us what we want, but actually when he doesn't give us what we want. And instead, his, his way finds its way through things like a manger or a virgin with scandal in the middle of the night or even death or sickness. Just because God doesn't do the things that we think he should does not mean that he is not God. But a religious heart, an overly religious heart, uh, heart thinks that we have him at our disposal. Last, of, last but not least, of course, this is Christmas. And we're not here to talk about Caesar Augustus or even David. We are here to talk about Jesus and so when Joseph and Mary go to Galilee and Nazareth and they show up in the city of Bethlehem because he was of the house of lineage to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child, verse 6. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Mary was with child and she was about to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. This is, of course, very different from a secular king, very different from a religious uh, king. This is the king of kings. This is Jesus. This is Jesus. This is why we all showed up today. Not to learn a good history lesson, but to have our hearts look fully and completely at how Jesus is the king of kings. Very different from a secular king, very different from a religious king. This is the king of kings. The Westminster Confession, or uh, Shorter Catechism says this. So how is Christ a king? He says this, as a king, Christ brings us under his power. See the difference? His power, his rules, and he defends us and restrains and conquers all his and all of our enemies. So how is Christ king? He is able to do all of this for us. That's something that Caesar was not able to do. As good as David is, this is something that David would not be able to do, was to bring us under his power and rules and for us to conquer and restrain all of our enemies and all of his. So how will Jesus be the king of kings? 
There were very few descriptors of his very first days, very few. And yet with each descriptor, there is a way in which we see his kingdom take shape. So how will Jesus reign and how will Jesus rule? How will he be the one who's on the throne forever and always? How will he be the Messiah, the Savior, the Christ, the Lord? How will he do all this? We see it in verse 6 and 7. We see Jesus born. Very simply, Jesus was born. This is this phrase, Emmanuel, God with us. The fact is that Jesus had spent all of eternity past in the heavenlies. He spent his entire existence with the Godhead, enjoying complete unity and peace and passion with the creator God himself. And he's known nothing other than that environment. And yet with the Christmas story, he is born. We read it in Philippians 2 earlier that he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but lowered himself. He came to earth with us. And so where kings sit on thrones, what Jesus did first and foremost is that he was born. He was truly subjected to us. And so where do we find Jesus first and foremost? We find him in the same way that we would find any other baby that was born in Franklin Woods today or tomorrow or last week or this week. Weighing in at sometimes at eight pounds, six ounces, 19 inches, or whatever he is, he was simply born. He was simply gathered close to Mary. He was the one who was the, I mean, overall and in all, finding himself needing to nurse or needing a diaper change. This was Jesus who lowered himself. He first and foremost will reign by coming alongside us. Hebrews tells us, Um, somewhere in my notes, somewhere. I'm sorry. Hebrews says something very, hang on. Let's just, let's just find it. I'm sorry. I'm such a dork. I don't know where it is in this, in these. He needs to be like us in every way is the, is the gist of the Hebrews passage. He was born with us. He is incarnate. King of kings, not just born, but he was laid in a manger. So here it is in verse 6. I'm sorry, in verse 7. And she will give birth, and her firstborn son will be wrapped in swaddling cloths and laid in a manger. That's the first time we see that. Then look at verse 12. And you will find, and this will be a sign for you, you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Right? This is it. And then verse 16. And then when the shepherds go and they, when they're in haste with Mary and Joseph, what do they find? They find a baby lying in a manger. We debated and we bantered back and forth at the shop today just the significance of what it means to be in a manger. Most of it was just conjecture and so we'll just leave it that for just fun discussions. But the very fact is that three times this is the number one characteristic of how Jesus was described to Mary, to the shepherds, and what they saw himself was that Jesus spent his time and energy and the qualifier was that he was going to be laid in a manger. He would be laid in a feeding trough. My dog Athens is a horrible eater. He makes a mess. 
And if you look at his bowl today, right, because it's been a while since we've cleaned it, it's disgusting, right? And he's my pet. I love him, right? However, a manger is a trough where grain and hay are put in. And so animals come and they eat of the stuff that's in there, from there. And this is where Jesus will be laid, is in a manger. How will he be king of kings? He will not just be born, but he will be laid in a manger. Instead of being close to Mary, Instead of just being under the warmth of her embrace, the characteristic that will set him apart is this right here. Three times in one short passage that Jesus will be laid in a manger. He simply is a humble king. He's incarnate. He is with us, but he's a humble king. And lastly is there's no room for him in the inn. We don't know why there was no room right? We just know that Mary and Joseph, that they showed up in Bethlehem expecting to get a room, expecting to have a place to lay their head, but they couldn't find it. And so whether there was no place in the Airbnb, whether there was no place at the hotel, or there was no place, right, at the relatives, we don't know why. We just know that there was no place for them. And this is another descriptor of our king, that he lowered himself even in a manger where there was literally no room for him. He was rejected from day one. He was isolated from day one. He was marginalized since day one. This is not, these are not the descriptions that we would give a king. We would say that this type of king would actually come to know no good or no quality or no value in our lives. And here we are 2,000 years later. We're continuing to sing songs to the King of Kings because this is how he starts his kingdom. Sure, Caesar Augustus stretched his empire from Great Britain to Egypt, and that's, that's remarkable. Sure, King David is mentioned 1,078 times, and yet Jesus Jesus, the King of Kings, has come to be a Savior, the Christ, the Lord for all people everywhere. This is Him. So the question for you and I is, is this idea of throne or kingship in our own lives. This is an old Campus Crusade for Christ uh, a question that they've asked probably millions of times. And they simply ask it this way. Who sits on the throne of your heart? And so this is a college ministry that has asked this question to thousands of people. And so I'll just ask it to the hundred of people this morning. Who exactly is sitting on the throne of your heart? There's a chance that you have a secular heart. And there's a chance that you have a religious heart. And there's a chance that with both of these options, you have yourself sitting on the throne of your life, not Jesus. So the secular heart, this yourself here, is one who thinks that the only thing that life is able to give you is power and authority and success. And you will do anything in your power for you to make sure those things happen. Most of us in here would reject and say, yes, the American dream is something, but it can't be the be-all and end-all of everything. Some of us in here, though, have religious hearts. 
And the religious heart still has yourself sitting on the throne of your heart, of, of your life. Because you are telling Jesus what you expect out of this type of relationship. And if it goes anywhere contrary to what you think or how it should go, then you're proving that you're on the throne by talking down to God, by saying things like, how dare you do that? Or I don't deserve these types of things. And so with that, you have yourself on the heart, uh, on the throne of your heart. Or, of course, there is the king of kings who belongs on the throne, not just of your own heart, but of the entire universe. This morning, this Christmas, we want to challenge all of us to consider who's on the throne of your heart. How are you looking at Jesus? Are you seeing him as just an amazing person who did amazing things? Are you looking at Jesus as simply a way to get what you want? Or will you elevate him to the place that he deserves to be, which is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, who is the master of all things? Sure, Jesus Christ was born and laid in a manger and there was no place for him in the end. But there will be a time where the king in all of his glory will come back. And it tells us that he will be riding a horse made of white, right? This may be just great imagery, but he'll have two tattoos, one on each, one on each thigh. One says King of Kings and the other says Lord of Lords. There will be a day when you understand this graphic. And I just don't want that day to be the day in which reality is the only time that it sits in. We want you to believe that this baby laid in a manger really knows what he's talking about. Because the way that we live this life is actually under authority, in subjection to him, as we too are laid in mangers day in and day out, where we live a life of humility, not of pride. And so who sits on the throne of your heart? This morning, this Christmas season, we would encourage you to ask these types of questions of yourself. But we'd also encourage you to walk into these types of conversations with people who are far from Jesus. Perhaps you're in here this morning and you've never heard it this clear. And maybe this morning you want to say, Lord, I want to get myself off the throne of my life and I want to put you there. Lord Jesus, I'll replace it. I want you to be the king of my life. Maybe that's you today. And the way that you respond is simply to say, Lord, I want this, not that. And you begin to walk with Jesus in a real, in a, in a personal way. The other way that we respond here is that each of us, when we come to the communion table, we say something of this table. We say, Lord, you are the king of kings. You are the one who laid down your life for us. And so William Henley cannot be true if this is also true. I cannot be the captain of my own soul or the ruler of my fate if this is true. And so the night that Jesus was not born, but the night that Jesus was, was betrayed, Jesus took a piece of bread and there was bread and there were grapes and there was wine and a, and a meal just like this. And he took a piece of bread and he broke it. And he says, this is my body given for you. And we just think that being laid in a manger is a place of, 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 of humble and being, being humbled. But the place of giving your life for other people, now that is the place of true humble. 
But then he takes a chalice of wine and he shares it with his friends. And he says, this is the blood of my new covenant given for you. He says, I will be poured out like a drink offering. And so yes, this manger was quite the picture of, of being humbled. But being subjected to the point of death. Now this was the place in which we truly see his love for us. He was the king of kings when he was laid in the manger. He truly started his kingship when he lived and he died for us. Men and women of faith, we come to this table this morning. Worshiping Jesus for what he has done. How he started this life and how he finished his life. And how everything is a moment of consistency for him. He was no more or, or, or no less the humble king that we serve. So as we rise, go ahead and stand. We too come to these table, come to this table. And as we approach him, we come trusting in his consistency and his rulership over us. There are men in these corners that are going to serve this meal to you. We also have Mr. Bruce and Miss Neji in the back that would love to pray with you if you want to, to share with them any burden that's on your heart. But especially if you want Jesus to become your Savior, your Lord, your Christ. Please go back and share with them this morning. So go ahead. You are dismissed and, and these, these men will serve you communion.